Yeah, he's a good man. Yeah, he good. Uh, I think he won the medal actually for the FRCS exam. You know, did he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he doesn't. Said, you know, he's a clever man. He, nice he, man as well. He said the funniest thing I have ever heard in my life in a hospital, and it was, it's like it's very PC. Essentially, some woman suicidal ideation jumped from whatever small height but got a distal radius fracture you know straightforward college fracture she had a back slab she's also you know taking a few different substances and he was on she was on you know paracetamol or the rest she's on the mau so he goes in he goes to see her and i'm with him on the ward round and uh he does his business like oh nice to meet you man he's orthopedic surgeons blah blah blah, 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 blah. Uh, you've got a radial fracture so it's fine we'll put you in a cast for two weeks we'll see you in clinic in two weeks time we'll take you out of the back slab put you in a splint it should be fine all right okay x-rays on arrival okay all right walks off and then um as he's walking off the amu ward sister keeps asking him for different things like who's going to do the follow-up he's like one of my juniors sort of follow-up and then he carries on walking she's like what about the the kind of like parvalex thing and he's like i don't even know what parvalex is <laughs> on. and she and, and then she says what about like mental health team referrals and he goes listen I'm here to fix bones, right? I don't do any of the mental thing, mental health things. Like, look, that's my expertise. You can't backslab a broken heart, and then he just walks off. <laughs> it's a hundred percent true, though, isn't it? You, you can't, can't uh... a broken heart. You know, I think we just found the title of the episode. Just... Put it on. There we are. There's that's the title. Right. There Put it we... down. You can't backslab. I'm writing that down. Yeah. Right. That is good. Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. In this episode, I guess we we started out thinking we were going to talk about things, you know, dealing with disappointment. Um, but I guess it's sort of more dealing with when things go wrong in surgical training. And I guess me and Asad were talking. It's like when I when I got my um uh, training number, a lot of people said, "Oh, you know, you can relax now." Which is, you just said it like you know it's it's all straight and narrow from here on in. But then Asad was very quick to crush that feeling and be like, "No, this is when this is when it all starts." <laughs> this, this is, you know, there's a lot lot more to come. I think it's a tricky thing because, like, you, when you when you look from the outside in, right, ST three or higher surgical training, whatever, it looks like the promised land. It's like the Shangri La. You've you've busted a hump for like however many years, maybe even start during med school to get to this point and you think that's it i'm a reg i've made it it is it is the biggest game of snakes and ladders you'll ever see isn't it each yeah. time you know you finish foundation program you're at the top you throw your dice again and it's like oh, i've got a number you take one step forward and back to the bottom you build yourself back up you get to the end of core training you're the one that everyone wants to be on call with get your number throw your dice one step forward back to the bottom and you build yourself back up and then along the way to the top, 
there's still all those snakes and, and ladders to uh, to climb and slip down. And eventually you get there. No, I'm definitely feeling Fuck. that at the moment. I've gone from like a very, very comfortable SHO. Like, I'm not worried. I'm not phased about on-call shifts. I can do most things. But I've been doing sort of reg shifts recently. I've realised I've gone from comfortable SHO to a very anxious reg. So it's a, it's, it's a big... I think it's important you um, acknowledge that as well. Because then you can deal with it. If you don't ever accept it, you'll never deal with it. That's my view on that. And not even just that. Like, there can be a little bit of Dunning-Kruger effect. Like, you oh. think you're absolutely smashing it. And re- the reality is, is the whole long call's on fire. Same <laughs> <laughs> day. And actually just a trail of destruction in your wake. So um, being anxious and not knowing what you what you don't know is is it's a motivator to try and sort that out. Mm. I wouldn't worry too much about it, Jamie. Like... Yeah. You'll enjoy it, man. <laughs> well, I hope so. Strap in and just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Strap in for the ride. Wise words. Absolutely. You don't even introduce you, Rich. We should. I know. Yeah, I just remembered that. Sorry, we normally <laughs> it's all right. make a nice introduction. Um, Richard Unsworth, orthopedic trainee. Welcome. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> well, actually, strictly speaking, he's not a trainee anymore. He is uh, orthopod extraordinaire. CCT. Well done, Rich. Well, thank you. I won't go with the extraordinaire, but yeah, I've got a, a, a piece of paper and I've paid my fee to the GMC to be on the specialist register. But yeah, reached the promised land. <laughs> is it still as sunny as... Uh... It's not quite as sunny. That's the consultancy, I think. That's the promised land and sunniness. Um, but, you know, we're still a step further than we were. Yeah. So keep fair. going. Fair, fair, fair. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the thing about this as well, I think... You know, you can be like, I think we're fairly robust lads, but you can be like the toughest, toughest nut around, but it doesn't take much to to knock you down a couple of pegs. And sometimes that, you know, you want training or you want your job or your career to give you a break. And it, sometimes it doesn't, just when you're feeling down. Yeah, it stamps on you, doesn't it? It just sticks the boot in. Yeah. So it does get to you. And I suppose there's a, there's a, there's a reason why people talk about need, you need resilience in training. Yeah, absolutely. You are going to be challenged time and time again. You're going to have uh, problems, bad days, things that don't go quite right, things that aren't going quite right outside of medicine. And you just need to figure out your coping mechanism to deal with that and move on. And that's all part of your training as well, because eventually you're going to be a supervisor. You're going to have to help others for these challenges. So lived experience is the best experience isn't it so you know necessarily bad things that happen to you today may seem absolutely horrible and terrible times but you know when you get through them and you look back you'll be in a far better place both for yourself and for people who you're going to supervise and train in the future because you can help them so you know every cloud has a silver lining it might be horrible miserable and dark as you're going through it but there is uh, some light at the end of the tunnel yeah, I suppose it makes you, I mean, in the end, where we talked about the um, Dunning-Kruger effect, and it's like it is part of your development as well, is going through this stuff. Um, it's kind of important. I mean, if you look back, I, certainly when I look back at times when I've actually like made the biggest learning jumps, it has usually started with kind of a hard slap around the face where I've, you know, realised that there's, you know, things have not gone right and I've realised there's um, sort of work to be done. How do you actually sort of like um sort of you know handle the situation when you're going through it you you talked about sort of you know wading through the dark and stormy days 
everyone's different. And I think that's the key to this, that everyone will have a different coping mechanism. And mm-hmm. so some people won't want to talk to their mates about it, you know, and that's that's fine as long as they're still coping. I'll be honest, I didn't really, um, when, when I've struggled, I've never really gone to formal things. The biggest hurdle was the FRCS. I failed my first attempt, so I had to resit it. And that's a real kicking the nuts basically no one ever talks about failing exams you know it's the big taboo everyone shields shies away from it doesn't say anything about it and you know it stings it really really hurts it really gets to you kind of thing it knocks your confidence crushes you um you feel like you've let yourself down more importantly you feel like you've let all those trainers down who've put in all the effort with you over the years you feel like you've let your mates and your family down again supporting you and then you're like well where do i go from here and i think i think there's there's a lot to be said about the actual strength and resilience you need to pick yourself back up and go again they offered me to go and see an educational psychologist i think i think that's what it is basically an exam coach and i was like well do I really need to go and see someone like this? I've always been okay with exams. But, you know, they offered me this chap and I was like, oh, should I go? Shouldn't I go? And you know what? I just went, there's some help being offered. Why not just go and see him? Honestly, it was quite, I, I found it quite useful. I don't think he did anything revolutionary and I'm not sure that he was the key to me passing the reset. It was just basically someone absolutely outside of medicine, outside of your network of friends, just a complete stranger. And you go and have a chat. This is, you know, what's gone on. Um, this is where I need to be. This is what I'm thinking of doing. And he goes, yeah, yeah, do this, do that. Suggest this. And he's like, I don't think he's just small tweaks. The best thing he ever, he actually gave me was a link to some brainwave music. <laughs> and it just helped me concentrate far better. And I was just like, it's just something, you know, I, I would never, ever have even contemplated or considered and then, then you get through it kind of thing. But in the meantime, you're going to work. You're thinking no one wants to work with you because, you know, you're the exam failure. Everyone's just like given up on you. You've given up on yourself. And it's horrible. It is horrible. And there's no two ways about that. You know, the help's there. But sometimes you've just got to be brave enough to ask for it. And, you know, the stereotypes, I think, from 20 years ago where it was probably frowned upon. I think that's all disappeared now. Because when I actually started telling people, oh, look, I've uh, I've failed my exam, all of a sudden you'd find that there's lots of people out there who've actually failed their exam as well. Consultants who you look up to kind of thing. And then all of a sudden they start getting in touch with you and going, look, uh, it happened to me. Just, Just work, keep going. If you need anything, get in touch kind of thing. And it just opens some doors for you. The way you cope is very individualistic. Lots of people say, oh, you've got to talk to people. You've got to talk to people. That's true if that works for you. If it doesn't work for you, speak to your close friends or, you know, some people might turn to exercise, running or whatever to to free themselves. But, you know, there's help there. But I think it's also important for all of us who aren't going through it to keep an eye on your mates. I suggested that instead we should start every trauma meeting with, with a question to the SHO and call of uh, how are you rather than how's it been, how's the night been, yeah, just go how are you kind of thing, see how they are and just take a bit of time for each other and I don't know about you but I've got a lot of friends now in surgery and you know if I can help them in any way I will and I think it's reciprocated and I think I think that's a key that we keep your friendships and you the higher up the chain you get, this is to come for you, uh, Jamie. The higher up the chain you get, the more isolating it is. How was your very little initiative received? You saying, should we check on the SHOs and stuff for the night? Um, so, so it was said at a meeting, actually, where um, 
an incident had happened in a trust, very serious incident, unfortunately. Um, and then like, how can we prevent it? And I was just sat there going, we never actually ask seriously how each other are. You know, like, there's lip service paid to it, but we actually should. How are you? You see people, rabbits in the headlights sometimes, and actually they're not okay. But, you know, we're all trained to just go, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And you're like, well, if you're not okay, you're not okay. And that, it's okay not to be okay. Do you know, like we we have the Hello, My Name Is campaign. Yeah. If you have a Hello, How Are You? Are You Okay? Uh, campaign. I move to go in favour of You Okay, Hun? Question mark. That's what I would prefer. You Okay, Hun? <laughs> Message me, Hun. Too many snakes on here. <laughs> You know, the thing is, we don't talk about it enough, actually. Like, psychology is really, really important in surgery. You've got, for, I think, for so many reasons. First of all, it's like it's like sports, isn't it? You can have the technical prowess and you can have the fitness and the agility and the whatnot. You can be the fastest forward on the pitch, but unless you believe you're the man that can sort of psych out the other player or whatever and put one past the keeper, you're not going to do it. Just being fast or nimble isn't enough. And it's the same with surgery. You've got to believe that you can do it for a couple of reasons. First of all, things do go south, either interoperatively or professionally or whatever. And I think you've got to believe that you can fix it. That's part of mastery. You know, like a level four PBA is someone who can do the procedure, deal with complications, then rectify the complications. That's what technical mastery is. And I feel like if you can apply that to your own surgical skill you should be able to apply that to your own career secondly it sounds a bit grandiose but i'm whatever i'm just going to say it like we are the treatment for people you know in like given these pills given this infusion given this drug it's it, you go up to the patients and you say i am going to do your operation it's me i am your treatment and they've got to believe you that you're capable of doing it so you do have to have some confidence some belief in your own abilities because if you don't then they're going to be like, I don't buy into the fact that they're capable of doing this. There is that level of of confidence and self belief that you've got to you've got to maintain somehow, even if you're taking it on the chin and just you you know life is just filling you in. It's doing its best to put you on it on your ass. Well, I, I'd agree with you in that sense. You know, we are when you pick up that knife, especially when you get to the end and you're solo operating, you are responsible for basically everything. Um, you know, and it, it's difficult. And if your confidence is shot, then A, how are you going to instill confidence in your patient? How are you going to instill it in the theatre team? And mainly, how are you going to do that operation without believing in yourself? And if you lose that belief, you're in a whole world of pain, I think, as a surgeon. Sometimes you started worrying about your decision making because surgeons, you are, when you're make, when you're doing your procedure, you make pretty high level decisions every time you stroke your blade kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's really difficult once your confidence is gone to get it back. And that's something that I think we all understand that, you know, I think we've all had that knock and we all seem to recover. A wise man once told me, you can't make omelettes without breaking eggs. If you're going to do procedural medicine, you're going to have complications. Anyone who says they've got zero complications is either lying or not doing enough operating. But it's still, 
it's still hard to kind of come back. And the first time you get stung, and you will get stung, it is going to happen. It, it's really hard, actually. It's just a swift kick in the nuts. There's a lot of evidence. There's a, there was a study that showed that after a surgeon has made a complication, in the immediate few days afterwards, their likelihood of making another, you know, having another complication increases because their confidence is knocked and their, their surgical ability is impaired. I'm pretty sure I read a paper where actually some surgeons were interviewed after major complications and some actually exhibited symptoms of PTSD. They were so traumatized by what happened. It just came out of nowhere. You'll never know when something just comes right out of left field and goes, bam, have that, enjoy that. And then you just think, you know, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll stick with you for the rest of your career. You know, we've all got those cases in the back of your mind. You know, I, I can see the patient's face remember the names you know and it's there and the the question is how do you how do you actually put that in your mind learn from it and keep it there rather than keep it in your mind and let it destroy you um and that's a key part of your surgical training figuring that out i think you know because there are going to be bad days and there are going to be things that go wrong and how do you deal with that how do you move forward i've got I'm painting such a like shitty picture of myself. Like I've had all these problems, right? Even little things can come and and just bite you in the arse, and you seem so boneheaded. I mean, I remember I was ST four, right? And I just sort of did a fembaloni popliteal bypass, and I was like, "Yeah, I've done it. I'm the man. I can do this case." Go and close the wound, and I stitched the bypass into the wound. So I've just occluded what I've spent three hours just doing. And I was like, you know, when you think I've made it, I've made it. And all of a sudden, bam, no, you haven't. Sit back down, son. Wind your neck in. Of course, you haven't done it. My supervisor rectified the problem. It was fairly straightforward, but I just felt so small and so retarded in that minute. I was just like, I can't believe I've done that. That is the most basic, most stupid mistake. Any sort of elation or sense of personal pride with one stitch has gone boom. It's horrible at the time, isn't it? But... I must say that I think you learn more from the cases that don't go brilliantly than the ones that go completely smoothly. You know, they you don't even think about them twice, the things that have gone smooth, do you? You can't, you can't tell me, could you remember, say, an, a AAA that you fixed as an ST5 that went swimmingly? Probably not. Could you remember a difficult one, a hard one, one that challenged you? You will, you will know that patient. You'll remember what you learned. I think that's a change in training as well, you know, 30 years ago. Like senior reds, you'd be doing everything and you you were making the mistakes. But I think our more experienced colleagues probably learned by making those errors. And that also made them learn how to escape from their errors. And I think sometimes the first time you come across certain complications, rather than being a senior reg, you'll be the consultant, which I think is a bit scary, actually. That's just the way that the game's changed. And I think it's important. If if that's the case, then we should be sharing things like this, you know, where things have gone wrong and discussing them so that everyone can learn from your experience so that hopefully they can avoid it as well. And I, I think the surgical profession as a whole, though, has moved towards that, haven't they? To actually opening up and honesty and duty of candor certainly has brought it to the fore. At times where I've, I've learned the most is from when things have gone wrong and I've learned like, the hardest lessons. And I, I have this colleague who's he's a, he's a reg, um, and he seems to just have this endless 
like anecdotes of where things have gone wrong in cases. And he does uh, constantly, every time he gives a piece of advice, he says, so, you know, make sure you do this because at one time I didn't do this and this is what happened. Um, and it's actually, it, it hits the, the advice hits harder. So I think, you know, things like M&M and an open discussion about when we, you know, don't get it right is actually really important. I feel like every, every wound you pick up, it's just like another purple heart. You, you pin onto your, uniform or your scrubs it's like another war wound that you carry around with you and you learn from this it's like a an experiential catalog that you can call back on in times past oh remember this don't do that don't do that be a bit wary about handling this situation this way have any of you ever been in in a serious untoward incident or an event that's gone disastrously wrong or involved in one of them? I've not myself, no. Um, which I think, I think it's a bit strange because I've, you think I've been a doctor now for over 10 years and I've, I've not. So maybe I've not been doing enough doctoring and that's the problem. Have you had a SUI that you want to share? <laughs> it's a safe space, safe space. I touched on it in a previous episode, and it wasn't. I was I was working in general surgery, and a, a woman with a post-op complication came into hospital, and I picked it up and I saw her and assessed her. And I was the first person to do it. I wrote a management plan. I, she was quite poorly actually, so I handed it over to my nighttime colleague. Nighttime colleague saw her went and, and assessed her himself, put down his things. And, and this colleague was senior to me. So I was a brand new SD3. He was SD6. Then the consultant post-take the patient, and then they realised a bit too late. They took them to theatre for the complication, and unfortunately the patient died, uh, which this was like five or six days post their initial operation. So it triggered a serious untoward incident. And I went through like, and I was really under the microscope here. I thought, oh, shit, have I killed a woman? Like, have I actually led to a death? Now, when I mentioned it previously, I think that the point I was trying to was more to do with the fact when when you've got people trying to scapegoat you or make life difficult. But separating that aside, I genuinely felt pretty bad. I felt like uh, people always tell you you're going to kill someone, and that's good. that's the reality of being a doctor. But, but this is the first time in my life I thought, "Holy shit!" This woman had. I saw this woman, and 24 hours later, she is dead. And I was the first person to see what could I have done? What could I have done? And 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 you start then introspecting. And, and the problem is, is that I went down the rabbit hole. I started becoming pretty defensive. And defensive medicine is a it's a bad road to go down. You start over-investigating things. You start needlessly doing things. Everything has to be quantified. Everything has to be followed up. Everything has to be checked. And you drive yourself crackers looking over the details again and again and again and again. And it's almost like... You know, when you, you, you've applied for, I don't know, Glasto tickets and you click refresh, 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 you're going over this situation again and again and again. And n- not just that, then you, you take this and apply it to loads of different scenarios. I had a sit-down debrief with the person who did the who conducted the RCA, the surgeon that did it. And he basically said, look, you're off the hook, okay? Post-op complications are going to happen. Now, even if you were the person who's responsible these things are not punitive. They're there to be learned from because like you say, you know, the complication happened organically. It's just a thing that happens. So you're, it's it's not that you need to think you're to blame and you're living in exile now for the next three, four years of your life. Even if you were responsible, I would tell you to, 
to go write some reflection. But I have a feeling that the the emotional kind of toil, the guilt and the obsession with the details and what have I done, what could I have done differently, is going to play on your mind far longer than some arbitrary reflection. This is going to weigh on your mind for the next, maybe for the rest of your career. And he's right, because that happened like quite a few years ago. And, um, you know, here I am still able to recount the details. So it it is really hard. Yeah, I, th- I think I think like you say, and and having the SUI has probably given you that debrief that you may not have had. So, you know, if it hadn't have gone through the investigation, you'd have probably had it weighing on your mind and wouldn't have had that formal opportunity of actually uh, the investigator going, actually, you've done nothing wrong here, I said. And you need to learn from it, but free yourself from the guilt of it. But you'll never free yourself from the guilt of it kind of thing. You can tell now in what you're saying there, you still wonder if, there's always that if, isn't there? If I'd have done this, if I'd have done that, would it have changed something? And like you've done, you've got to accept it and deal with it or else it, it can crush you, I think. I've never been involved in, in a never event, but I know people who have. And I feel like when never events happen, it's in the, it's the, the clues that name you think, oh my God, I've been involved in this thing that should have never, ever, ever, ever happened. And I think the person that, that was what the container was like, they didn't used to be called never events. They were just events it wasn't really a big hoo-ha i'm not trying to be cavalier about it i'm not trying to say oh it's fine just do what you want just sew all the swabs in who cares what i'm saying is that these were events that people learned from that then changed practice it's because of never events that we have an initial and a final swab count and we check their instruments and we check sharps it's because of this we have right correct site surgery forms it's because of this because we have that we have who checklists so it's not that if something like that happens to you that you can't ever do this again, it just means that you might have to be a little bit more vigilant and just pay attention to the detail. But you shouldn't ever let things like that derail you or, or make you feel like you can't. We're trying to move away to that from a punitive culture more to like an airline culture where you don't look at the individual persons and processes. It's not someone's fault. It's not your fault that swab is in that wound. It is, well, collectively, the surgeon didn't stop to do the count and maybe the, the scrub nurse did not allow that. And then maybe the third circulating staff were chatting too loud. And as a team, collectively, someone's gone wrong on our, on our collective watch and we need to figure out what that is. And we need to not do that again because that should not happen again. I think, yeah. I think, like you say, that it's important as well that whenever something like that happens, that there's the support there for the people who are involved. Because no matter how resilient you are, you're going to take a knock from that. And I think it's beholden on all of us when something like that happens to a colleague, step up to the plate and you support them. Yeah, I mean, I've heard this story that Asad told before. This wasn't the case for Asad. He wasn't supported very well. And I think a majority of cases people i would say people are these days supported through these kind of events but it doesn't always happen i think i said you can sort of testify to that from your experience that's true i mean the department i worked in where this thing happened that was a, that was a toxic department and i've never been back there since and i won't have to go back and that's fine the example i gave before earlier where i stitched in the bypass into the wound that was in a very supportive department my supervisor was very supportive he was like oh don't worry about it just let me take this the suture snip and then as i was like my face was just falling through the mask in despair 
and horror. He was like, don't worry about that. They call that a McBride when I was in training because I did it so often. And <laughs> just, what, it's, it's the McBride manoeuvre. And I was like, I think you're just trying to make me feel better. And he was like, well, yeah. you'll never know. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But trust me, when I that that, that was normal for me. So, yeah, just do that. <laughs> yeah. And, but you still learn from it. I'm sorry you had the uh, bad experience, mate. Um, so that's that's not good. But I think I think I would hope that when our generation comes to the fore and are the leaders of departments, that with our soft skills that we've picked up over the years, that hopefully that becomes more and more rare. You know, it's 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 a unique experience. I think what we go through as doctors even more unique for when it's a surgical thing because you're actually doing it you've done that um if you're holding that knife it is you who's done it i think realistically there's only other surgeons who can really understand that experience with you i think it's important to keep your support network nice and broad so that sometimes you can reach out beyond your vascular network and you can go uh, what would you do with this in orthopedics and you go oh i just put plate on it Play it. <laughs> what on the aorta? Yeah, play it. Uh, it's, play cal- it. it's calcified, isn't it? Just play yeah, it. How do we pick ourselves up? That is that is the age old question. How do we lift ourselves up? Especially when you're in the, the abyss. You know, it is dark and it is deep in that abyss. And somehow you've got to find the will to carry on. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough place. I think you learn a lot about yourself in that place. Certainly when I was there after my uh exam, I was I was rock I'd say rock bottom kind of thing. But you know, you can either sink or swim and you know, you speak to people and then people start coming to you going, you know, I've been there, you know, like, keep going kind of thing. And it's so frustrating when people come along and they go, oh, keep going. Or they come along, especially with the exam. One of the commonest things people will tell you is, oh, just do a bit more work kind of thing. It's not very helpful because, you know, I did work hard and it's just not gone right on the day. So am I going to rectify it? For me, I knew what the answer was. So I was you know, like, once I'd stopped sulking and thinking the world was all against me and things and just got on with it. We move on. And at the end of the day, you know, the, there's light at the end of the tunnel. But even if there's not, there's, there's, you know, medicine now isn't the be all and end all. And I, I think as you get older, you realize that, that other things are more important. And I think you probably neglect that when you're a junior doctor because you are so, so focused on your career and getting up the ladder and things. But actually, when you get a little bit older, you go, well, actually, you know, there's other things beyond this. And I think keeping healthy hobbies and interests outside of medicine and keeping keeping active outside of medicine is equally as important and something that we probably don't um, profess enough to. If you play football, carry on playing your sports. So, like, do it for as long as you can. And it's just a good release. And, you know, you've got to keep a healthy lifestyle because otherwise you can be swallowed up. And when something bad goes wrong, you have no escape. Yeah. There's, there is, I think there's now got to be a culture of where we look after each other 
as well as our patients. Yeah. And I think that culture is coming and I think it's more prevalent in our generations. Um, but yeah, I don't know what you think. Yeah, well, what do you think, Jamie? I've got my own thoughts, but what, what do you do to pull yourself out of a dark spot? It's interesting you ask that. I don't really know, to be honest. I don't, I, with difficulty. I think I've I've learnt over the years ways of doing it. Talking to people helps, although sometimes I don't like doing that. I I like to keep it to myself. Certainly to the for the start, I find talking about it straight away doesn't help. It's only after that I've actually had a word of myself, like reflected on it, and actually like being able to coherently explain how I feel about everything, um, then I'll be sort of ready to sort of speak to someone about it. And that's kind of like the end stage of it, <clears throat> you know, when I'm kind of coming out of the woodwork. But I think for me, the main thing is <clears throat> thinking, okay, how am I going to make this a positive thing? You know, if if something's gone wrong at work, <clears throat> I've had a bad day, for example, I'm going to say, okay, how am I going to make it so I look back and 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 not regret this happening? Because I think there are some times when, you know, previously in my career where, where things have gone wrong and I've gone back and I'm thinking, you know, actually I'm kind of, I'm, I'm glad it happened because it brought out the better of me. Um, and it probably avoided even worse things happening later on. And I think that's the only thing that you can sort of to, to bring yourself out. And the other thing is just having the sort of resilience to just keep going, just keep swimming. You know, that phrase from, uh, finding Nemo. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> the, the cartoon. It's the only thing I like that has come out of Ellen DeGeneres' mouth. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's a good phrase. You know what I mean, it's like, it, 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 there's this, there's this point sometimes when you, you know, you're on so much pressure. Yeah. Um, and you just sort of got to close your eyes and say, okay, I'm just going to get through this. Um, and that, that's really difficult. But what, I think when you learn how to do that, you can get through a lot. And get it gets you through a lot of hard times. So I was down this pit of despair. Um, I, I, there were a couple of things that actually helped me sort of pull it back. And I, you know, it's not it's not a prescription. It's not advice for people. But there were things that definitely did stand out. And I think the first thing you have to do is you've got to you've got to take the emotion out of it. So if you feel angry or you feel frustrated or you feel despondent or bereft you've got to feel those things you've got to let that work its way out of your system the emotion has to pass before you can then move on from it i know it's a a real real empty platitude and we always talk about reflections but i did reflect on it and i don't mean some like shitty journal entry on iscp i mean i sat down and i thought about it and i scribbled stuff in um on on paper and I keep a diary of like memorable things that have happened in my life, clinical encounters only because I don't, I will never release like a book or, you know, like Adam K did or, um, I'd read your book. I think it'd be quite a good book. Oh, thanks mate. That's very kind of me. I'll probably never (laughs) release it, but I might just, I write it down because sometimes I'll look back and go, yeah, that was pretty funny. But, uh, you know, maybe maybe I want to look at it at the end of my career or maybe I want to look at, show my kids uh, this is what the kind of stuff I got up to. But I write these things down just so I can think about them and I think about them in meaningful ways. 
The other thing is, I thought I thought again and again and again about the processes. What happened? What did I do? What was I thinking? And maybe I microanalyzed it. And I'm not normally a super analytical person. I don't. The devil's not always in the details, but in this instance, it was. And then I started thinking about: um, Did I know? Did I secretly know? And did I just ignore that kind of gut feeling? And I even went down as far as: What is a gut feeling? How does your gut know? And um, the answer that I could find from doing all the sort of reading about it is that gut instincts are pretty powerful things. And there's no, there's no such thing as a gut instinct. It's your brain's ability to perceive micro variations in, a, in an environment or a context or scenario that you know very, very well. It's really, really subtle. But you know it because you are so in tune with the environment. That's quite a powerful thing. And you try and zero in on on what that is and what's going to make your spidey sense tingle the next time this happens what makes you think hang on there's something that's not quite right here it doesn't sit right let me just go back to the beginning that that was pretty good and i've I've managed to avoid making similar sort of mistakes again since the other things i started doing was taking on nice easy things to to things that you can smash that you rack up and you boost your confidence so rather than trying to push myself to do complex cases or complex encounters, I pick easy ones. I'll do an easy case. I'll do easy stuff. When it goes right and it goes home, I feel a bit happier. Like, yeah, it's gone home. Patient's done well. I'm happy. I've done something constructive. I'm sort of slowly just brick by brick building myself up, building, you know, getting my mojo back. I thought that was quite good. The other thing was nice, actually, and it is a little bit self-serving, but I took some time to spend investing in junior colleagues maybe core trainees or medical students, and they're after me for a bit of advice or they need me to show them something, I would spend a bit of time doing it because you live vicariously through them. You can see their joy and their sort of self-belief and their fulfillment. And watching them develop is pretty powerful life fuel. It's good for you. But equally, they look at you like some sort of hero. They put you on a pedestal. And for a a, brief minute, you feel like someone aspires to be you. And that, that is a nice thing actually to do to drag you out the depths. Someone's looking up to you. Doesn't matter how small. That is, that is a reassuring and a comforting feeling. That was some stuff that I found that was, um, pretty good. You know, a nice little boost. And over time, gradually, brick by brick, you'll build yourself back up to where you need to be. Hmm. It's a good job they've not seen you in that orange jacket, though. I mean, that would ruin their illusions, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I thought for a second it was one of those, uh, just stop oil. <laughs> so junior doctor strikes on the back right? yes isn't it <laughs> I am yeah yeah you know, it's funny actually it's funny my in-laws bought some baby clothes right from Turkey just because they're on holiday in Turkey and they've got a couple of crab outfits for the baby and I have to put kitten her out in, in crab oh, take outfit. on the picket line absolutely baby carrier little crab outfit I don't know why they thought crabs are good for babies. Like, why is that a good outfit for a baby? But I don't care. It's very on brand, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> no, I, I think you made some good points there, man. Uh, I think it's very individual, isn't it, how you cope with it? There's lots of different ways, but, you know, if you're – I think Jamie hit the nail on the head. For some people, it is. You've just got to process it yourself, and you don't want to share it. And the last bit of it is sharing it. Other people want to talk about stuff straight away and you need that 
you know, like the balance and you need those options available to you because there's probably nothing worse than something happening and people keep mithering you. And actually, all you want to do is be left alone. You know, I just need a bit of time just to process this and then I'll come back to you kind of thing. And people keep repeatedly asking you is probably not what you want. So I think it, it's a case of looking after yourself, looking after your colleagues and just a- accepting the emotions of things will go wrong. Like you said, Assad processing it and then moving forward. Yeah. It's like what Jerry Spring used to say. <laughs> oh, God rest yourselves in each other. Till next time. <laughs> Are we signing off with that? Do you think that's the sign off for, for this episode? Jerry Springer's last thought. Yeah. Final. Jerry's final, final thought. <laughs>